We are still going through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which is a life, death, and which is a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, before we get started today, I just want to remind everybody of sort of the really dark passages that we're just kind of coming out of, um, because they're incredibly important to understanding what's going on today. But just the kind of last two sections that we've read in this gospel account, they've been brutal. So the first one was Jesus being rejected in Nazareth. Nazareth is his hometown. These are people he grew up with, friends and family, and they reject him to such a degree that the Gospel of Luke tells us they try to kill him. There's an attempted murder on the scene. They try to kill Jesus. Now, we know from the historical information at this time that when the text says that they tried to stone him, what most likely that looks like at that time and in that region is they attempted to throw Jesus off a cliff, and if the body was still moving or showed signs of life, then they would pick up stones and continue throwing at him, throwing the stones at him until he would die. So you have that brutal, horrific rejection of Jesus. And then immediately after that, you get the story of the death of John the Baptist. And from last week, remember the imagery and the details are are gross. They are vile. The scene is filled with wickedness and sin. There's a king, Herod, who throws a, a banquet feast in honor of himself on his birthday. And the story ends with not a, a wonderful feast and celebration occurring, but with the murder and decapitation of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's head is presented on a platter. So immediately after that, John's disciples go and bury the body of John the Baptist, and then they go and tell Jesus, and that's where we pick up. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And we'll pause right there to reflect on the state of Jesus at this moment. I mean, he's been rejected. They tried to kill him. It's his own people, his friends and family, people he grew up with. Then he gets news that one of his friends, his cousin, the person who baptized him, has been murdered brutally in this horrific manner, his head presented on a platter. And he knows that all of this is, of course, a a foreshadowing of what's to come to him, because what happens to the forerunner will ultimately happen to the one whom the forerunner proclaims. And so what does Jesus do? He wants to go away to a desolate place. He wants to be alone, find solitude, to commune and pray with his heavenly Father. Have you been there before? Where it's like just the weight of the world says, you're like, I gotta be alone. Just give me some time, some alone time by myself. And so Jesus does that. And he does so in a place called the desolate place. And this is an important image that's being developed. The word for desolate here is a ramos, and it means a desert, a wilderness, or like in this, a desolate place. But You have to picture this. Jesus crosses over water and enters into a desolate place, the desert, the wilderness. That's an image. Out of the water, going into the desert, into the wilderness. This is an image. It's important. And he's looking to find some peace, some solitude, some time to pray. And what happens? The crowds follow him. The masses follow him. Now, what do you do at that point? Well, what do you think Jesus is going to do? What would you do? I know what I would do. Go home. Leave me alone. I'd be tempted, like, do, like, a bad miracle. It's like, you know, if you know the Bible well, the ground has opened up in the desert and ate a lot of people, you know? 
that's not what he does. It says he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. This is a glimpse into the character of Jesus, to the heart of God, right? The Greek word for compassion here is a word that we've talked about in the past, so we won't spend a lot of time, but it's the word splachnizomai, and it means to be moved at the bowels or the guts. And the reason for that is ancient people thought the seat of affection and emotions was here in your belly. Modern people talk about it being in your heart. But if you think about it, the ancient person has, has a reason to think that. Like when you get, a, you're startled or you're scared or you have fear or you fall in love and you have butterflies in your stomach and sometimes there's emotions that you feel here like in your gut. And so what's happening is that Jesus is being stirred, like the affections in his gut see the needs of the people and he's moved. And you might have felt something like that where you see something, somebody so in need of help that it's almost as if you never even made the decision to help them. Like it so moved you and turned your guts, like your insides, that like you would say something like, how could I not help in that moment? It just, it comes out of you. And so Jesus sees the need and he has compassion on the crowd and he begins to heal their sick. Now this sets up one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. And it's incredibly important for us today because it's a miraculous story. And this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That might not sound like a big deal, but you need to know that outside of the resurrection of Jesus, there is only one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Which means whenever the first Christians talk about the story of Jesus, whenever you look at the four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it always talks about this story. So incredibly important. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away, go to the villages and buy, to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. This is, sets up the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Very popular kind of story. A lot of people know it. If you grew up in church, um, you, you were probably reading and hearing about it since you first had like a children's story Bible and there's little pictures and, and you, you, you know this. One of the problems though, for people who are familiar with the story is there's a level of familiarity with the story that you, be, that you can get that's like, you just, oh, I know this. And, you know, read it real quick. Yeah, I know how this is going. There's gonna be a miracle, some things here and there. And it's like, you, you've gotta slow down. So you're almost, you're almost at an advantage if maybe today's the first time you're hearing this story. Slow down, because there's, there's so much going on here and it's so important that all four gospel writers record this one story. Let's just kind of break this down piece by piece and look at the details. First thing you need to notice is that it says again, way up at the top, we're in a desolate place. So it reminds you, the reader, we're in the wilderness, we're in the desert. Now, as good like teachers do, when you, when you want to warn kids that something's going to be on the test, you use repetition. The gospel writer is telling you, desolate place, desert, 
wilderness. This is important. This is an image that's necessary. Second, uh, there's this, this cool part where um, the disciples are telling Jesus, hey, go tell these people to go away, man. It's getting late. We can't feed all these people. What's up, man? We can't do this. He's like, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. It's not like I'm going to take care of this or watch what I do. It's you give them something to eat. And their response is, we only have five loaves here and two fish. Now, I don't know the disciples, what they were thinking at this point. But again, I know what I would be thinking. I'm going, we only have five loaves and two fish. And there's 12 of us. Even if we split this up, this isn't a lot of food. I'm, I'm bargaining for a half a loaf right now with, with John. You know, this ain't even enough for us, Jesus. And now I know what you're going to do. You're going to say, oh, go share with everybody. How about you just take care of us? They say, we only got five loaves, two fish. He says, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Super important thing that's really easy to miss. When Jesus orders the crowds to sit down, the word for this, this command to sit down is anacrino. And it doesn't mean to sit like in the modern sense where, you know, if there's a church service, you say like, and you may be seated. Anacrino means to recline. And the word specifically, the majority of the time, it means to recline at a table so much that when you look this up, sort of like in a Greek dictionary, it'll say to recline at a table. And so the imagery is important here and it's kind of bizarre. They're out in the desert, the wilderness. And Jesus says, recline at the table. Now, Jews in the first century, if you were to have a feast or a banqueting, kind of a banquet celebration type of thing, the way you would eat is not in normal chairs, but you would recline around a table. So Jesus says, I know we're in the desert. No one has any food. But go ahead and recline as if at a banquet. And then he looks up to heaven and he says a blessing. Now, if you're like me, there's so much about the life of Jesus, things that he does, things that he says that you want to know more of. So when you read a text like this, you might be curious and ask yourself, I wonder what, I wonder what, how Jesus blessed food. You know, how does, how does Jesus do it? You know, because when we bless food, we say things like, God, thank you for this food. Help it bless our body, help it nourish our body. Like, well, what would Jesus say? What would he do? And the interesting thing is, we can't be certain, but we are nearly certain. I'm extremely confident we actually know how Jesus would have said this blessing. Because at this time, every blessing over food was done in a specific manner. The Jewish male, the head of the household, who's representative of the entire family, would get up and he would say a prayer of blessing. And it's, it's confusing because oftentimes we think about blessing the food, but in the Jewish worldview, God is good and he's created a good world. There's no need to further ask that he would help the food nourish your body. And if you do that, I'm not, I'm not like saying Jesus is against your, your prayers, but I'm saying that the assumption is that food nourishes body because that's the way God designed it. Because he's a good God and he's made a good creation. So what you would do, the word for blessing here is eulogeo, it's to offer up a praise. You would praise God and thank him for what he's provided. And every Jewish male head of household would say the blessing. And they would say, which is blessed are you, Lord our God, Yahweh our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. This is a quick prayer 
but it's actually profound. Blessed are you, Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's the God of Israel's name. But then it's followed by what? King of the universe. We recognize we're this itty bitty people group and you are the God of Israel, but you're not just the God of Israel. You are the King of the universe. You are God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. And we give you thanks because you bring forth bread from the earth. After this prayer, it says that Jesus then breaks the loaves, he breaks the bread, and he gives it to the disciples. And then the disciples give it to the crowds. It says, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they looked and they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over, full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. It's interesting because you don't, you don't really get the information on how the miracle occurs. I mean, did you catch that? It's, Lord, thank you. And then he breaks the bread and gives it to the disciples. And then the next scene you get is everyone's satisfied. Like, you don't get the mechanics of how that works. You just left out. I mean, you could say the people there might not even know what, that there was a miracle. For all they know, the disciples just started passing out bread. Like, there's no details. We don't know. All we know is there's this prayer of blessing. And then the next scene is everyone satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Now, important notes on the numbers here says that there's how many people? 5,000 men besides women and children. There's a couple possibilities on what's going on. Most likely, they're counting just by um, the male head of household as a way to kind of um, count families because it's very complicated to count a lot of people. Have you ever tried, have you ever given the responsibility of counting attendance of some large event? You know, it's like super difficult. So all these little kids are running around and stuff. So there's going family one, two, three, four, five, six. That's, so in that, if that's the case, there's 5,000 men, but that's representative of 5,000 families. So it's tons of people. Or it's possible, and this is interesting, that the crowd is actually mostly men who are there. And you say, why is it mostly men? In Israel's history, especially in what we call the intertestamental period, the four to 500 years before the time of Jesus, there are many sort of political revolutions and leaders that arise. And what you would do is you'd go out to the wilderness and gather your troops. Why? Because if you're going to lead, uh, lead a secret like revolution, you don't go to the center of Jerusalem in front of the Roman guards and you're like, okay, who wants to join the rebellion? You know, you don't do that. What you do is you'd go out in secret to the wilderness, and this is what would occur, and you'd gather troops and momentum and then make your attack. So it's possible that all these men have come to the wilderness because they're looking to make Jesus their political leader. And there's a hint at this because in the Gospel of John's telling of this story, it says that in this moment, they try to make him be their king, take him by force and force Jesus to be their king. So if you go out into the wilderness and you're declaring people king, the point is that you're going to go back in with force and take over. So it's a way of saying all these people have gathered around Jesus to help him march into Jerusalem and win the day. So it's like the men coming. Jesus, you have my sword. You, know, you have my axe. 
and my bow, you know? Same thing. We're going to march into Jerusalem. Now, what's up? What else is up with the numbers? There's 12 baskets full of broken bread. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of leftovers. If you read the scriptures again and again and again, you know that there's numbers all over the place. And sometimes they're just ordinary numbers that aren't intended to do anything else but report a number. But a lot of times, numbers are meant to do more than just report a number. And you're also familiar, likely, that there are certain numbers that when they appear, they're, they have extra meaning. So when you read the scriptures, you see things like 12. Usually, it's pointing to something. Jesus has 12 disciples to correspond to what? The 12 tribes of Israel. And when you see 12, this is, this is all over the scriptures. This represents the whole of Israel. So in filling the 12 baskets, there's this idea possibly that Jesus is saying that he is providing for all of Israel. There's another interesting detail on here that's easy to miss. The word here is baskets, right? In Greek, it's kafenos, and kafenos refers to a distinctively Jewish type of basket that would have been used to, to clearly communicate this food is kosher. So if you're Jewish, you, need, you have dietary laws, there's kosher, not kosher. So we're going to make our baskets look different so that we know that uh, this wasn't contaminated with Gentile food, that this is, this is approved of food. So Matthew is cluing you into something. Jesus is out in the wilderness providing bread, and now there's 12 Jewish baskets filled with enough. It's a powerful image. Jesus throws a feast in the wilderness, and it's all you can eat. And he provides so much, there's leftovers for all of Israel. In other words, all of Israel finds more than enough provision in what Jesus is doing. Now, when you're hearing this story, it might be drawing your mind back to another story. Because when you hear about a leader of Israel in the wilderness, in the desert, and the people not having enough food, and then there's a miracle of bread, what's coming to mind? This should draw your mind all the way back to the Exodus story, where Moses has just crossed the sea and gone into the desert, the wilderness, the desolate place, and the people of God do not have enough to eat. And Moses does this miracle, bread from heaven, they call it manna. And God miraculously provides, through his prophet Moses, provision for his people to have enough food. Now, in that story, if you remember the details, uh, you're supposed to just gather enough food for the day, right? You can't stockpile. It's like just enough daily bread to, to get you by. Which tells you something else that this story is Jesus, in this story that Jesus is doing. He is not just a new Moses type figure. He is the new and better Moses. Because when Jesus performs the miracle, everyone gets their fill. They are all satisfied. And on top of that, fill up the baskets, all 12 of them, with the leftovers. This is a powerful way to say Jesus is a new and better Moses. This is the bread from heaven once again in the desert, in the wilderness. And Jesus himself is doing this banquet. Why? Recline at the king's table and watch me work. This powerful imagery. Now, you take this story and you slam it up against the story 
that we read last week. And you're going to see there's two banquets, there's two feasts, there's two kings, and they're fundamentally different from each other. In the previous story, you have the evil King Herod who throws this evil, sinful, vile banqueting feast in honor of himself in order to provide for himself. And it ends with murder and a human head on a platter. It's gross. Herod in his palace throws a feast in honor of himself. Jesus is in the desolate place, the desert wilderness, and he throws a feast in order that he might provide for his people. Which king do you want? Herod in the palace or our king? A king who throws banquet feast in the middle of nowhere to make sure his people are satisfied and then further demonstrate that his provision is more than enough. Now, we're going to do something we hardly ever do. I don't think we've ever done this, actually. We're actually going to fast forward a chapter and a half. Um, and there's a reason for this. is because this story that we just read is going to appear ag again in a chapter and a half. And the similarities are going to be undeniable. The, the similarities... In this story, in chapter 14, and what we're going to read in a moment, chapter 15, are so similar that don't feel bad, but many Christians just assume there's one feeding of 5,000, where Jesus does the, the multiplication of the bread and the fish. But there's actually two, and they're right next to each other, separated by a few stories. And so what occurs leading up to the next incident of provision in the wilderness? with the multiplication of bread. The lead up is the same. Jesus is out teaching and he's performing miracles and the crowds gather. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna jump forward and skip over four or five stories into a story that sounds like the exact same story that we just read. Jesus is out performing miracles. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed this so great a crowd? And Jesus said to him, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. These stories are so similar that for those who do not trust the scriptures, they don't believe they're accurate, especially sort of in the academic scholarly world, people will say something along the lines of, um, the gospel writers had information about some miracle in the wilderness and the details they couldn't straighten out because they were contradictory. And so what they did was, rather than own up to the fact that they didn't have accurate details, they made this story into two stories and one story they told with these details and these sto this story they told with these other details, but it's really just them being confused. It's very common to hear this. And when you read it, when we get into it, you're going to go, it kind of sure sounds like the same story, but they kind of got confused on a couple details and just made it into two. What you need to know is that when the, the Bible appears to be in error, contradiction, or intention, or there's something problematic that arises in the text. No, the Bible always knows what it's doing. The Bible always knows what it's doing. 
The biblical authors are brilliant. They know exactly what they're doing. And so you trust it. The problem is not in the text. The problem is in with the way we're looking at something. So what are the similarities? What are the similarities? Do you see them? Jesus called to his disciples and he said, I got compassion on the crowd. I have compassion. Spock did my thing all over again. I've been with them three days. They have nothing to eat. But I'm unwilling to send them away. And then what do the disciples say? Where are we going to get enough food? We're in a desert. We're desert. We're in the desolate place. We don't got enough food. And Jesus, Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. So it's like desolate place, compassion. I'm unwilling to send them away. How, how much food do we have? It's all there. It's, it's like the same thing again and again. There is one small difference, though, that takes place in se- several verses before we read this. Matthew tells us that they're now in a location called the Decapolis. And the Decapolis, you can see that's a Greek term, Decapolis. It's like the, the area of 10 cities. Um, this is a Gentile territory. So there's going to be Jewish people there. But in this first miracle, it was a predominantly Jewish audience. Now we have a different setting where there's likely Jewish people, but there's going to be a lot more Gentiles there as well. All these Gentiles. Now, when you look at this, you're probably thinking, man, I don't, I don't know how this could be a different story. Because how could, like, the disciples just a chapter and a half ago, right, brought, said, Jesus, what are we going to do? We can't feed all these people. And then Jesus fed them all. Wouldn't they, in this instance, it's just a chapter and a half later, be like, hey, Jesus, remember that thing you did a chapter and a half ago? How about we do it again? But it's almost like they've never seen the miracle, right? It, it reads as if they've never seen the miracle. And so usually what you hear is people will, will kind of bash the disciples here. Like, yeah, these are the disciples. They're so dumb. They saw Jesus do these miracles and look how ridiculous they are. It's just like two weeks later and they forgot all of their lessons. How ridiculous they are. And it's like, are you kidding me? How many times have, has God demonstrated his grace, mercy, and provision for you, and a chapter and a half later, you forgot about it, and you're crying out to God, oh, where are you? I don't trust you anymore. It's like a chapter and a half later in your life. How many times has God done? He's provided. He's been gracious. And then we're worrying about it the next day. On top of that, there might be something else going on. Remember in the first miracle... Jesus is with a Jewish crowd, and there's 12 Jewish baskets, kosher food. It's all about providing for Israel. Now we're in Gentile territory, and Gentile means anyone who's not Jewish. Now we're in the non-Jewish territory with the Gentiles, and the disciples may be thinking, there's no way God's going to do the whole manna from heaven, how God provides for his people Israel. He's not going to do it with these guys. We're going to have a different plan, of course. Because Jesus' first miracle is meant to take you back to Exodus, how God provides for Israel. It's 12 baskets, the 12 tribes of Israel. We're not going to do that same thing here. But what occurs? And directing the crowd to sit down, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke it and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. Same thing. 
And they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending them away, after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Now, these stories map out upon each other, almost identical. It's, it's, it's pretty much the same story. So in looking at the similarities, you're going to see like, oh man, these are like identical. But it's not in the similarities that the meaning of these stories rise to the surface. You don't look to the similarities, you look to the differences to see what is Matthew trying to do with this story. And so we look to this. One of the differences, there's 4,000 men besides women and children. How many were in the other one? 5,000. So there might be some, some meaning behind that, but most likely this is just Matthew's way of saying, look, I'm telling you it's a different location and there's a different amount of people there. I know what I'm doing. It's a different story. Don't think it's the same thing. Yes, I know I wrote it in a way that they sound exactly alike, but pay attention to the differences. There's another major difference dealing with numbers. They took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Now this difference is incredibly important. And this difference comes to us in two ways, like two sides of a coin. One is really easy to see, but the other, the other side of the coin is difficult. So first, one easy to see. Seven baskets. It's not 12. And remember how I said uh, in the scriptures, there are certain numbers that are important. Well, there's 12. And what comes, what's like in second or third place, if not first place? Seven. Seven is a number in, in Hebrew thought. In Hebraic thought, it's, it deals with wholeness, completion. It's the fullness. And so it's possible that there's this idea that God provided for Israel, the 12 tribes. And now he is in Gentile territory providing for Gentiles. And the text is trying to get you to see God will provide for all of the nations. Everybody. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's going to go above and beyond. That's not just Israel. It's all the nations. And there's some other reasons why you might think that as well. So in biblical thought, going all the way back to Genesis, there, there's a concept of the table of nations. And that has to do with all the nations that aren't Israel. And this is woven all throughout the Old Testament, but there's this idea that God chooses Israel, and then there's the 70 other nations. And people can get caught up in going like, okay, there has to be precisely 70 nations always throughout history. And that's not, that's not necessarily the point. 70, number seven, when it's multiplied by seven times seven or seven times 10, appears all throughout scripture. It's a way to magnify the intensity of wholeness, completion, or fullness. And so the other nations represent 70 nations. It's a way of saying there's Israel and then 70 nations, all the other ones. It's the full reference to everyone, all the Gentiles, essentially. And so there's this hint, it's sort of like 12 baskets for Israel, but now among the Gentiles in, in Gentory, uh, Gentile uh, territory, I give you seven. Fullness for even them. And there's another layer to this. This one's almost invisible. It says he takes up seven baskets, right? And there was 12 before. Now remember, baskets before was kafenos, a distinctively Jewish type basket. Now it just says basket here, but in Greek, the word is spuridas. It's a different type of basket. It's a basket that was like the normal basket that everyone would use, the Gentiles would use. It's not one reserved for kosher food. So if you are mapping these stories on top of each other, you're seeing similarities, 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 and then you see God providing 
for his people, the Jews in the wilderness. And he's providing, there's Jewish baskets, there's the 12 tribes of Israel, there's provision for them. And then you get this other story where you're in Gentile territory, there's Gentile baskets, there are um, seven full completed filled baskets. And you're going, okay, I think I'm connecting the dots. What is Matthew trying to get us to, to see? Christ will provide for Israel and Christ will will provide for the nations. His mission extends beyond Israel. Why? Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. He is the God of Israel, but he's also the King of the nations. He's the King of the cosmos, King of the universe. And so in this story, you get these beautiful images of Christ himself providing for Jew and Gentile, for Israel and the nations. And he's more than enough. There's gonna be leftovers. Now, when we look at this story, if we're honest with ourselves, in the past, we often um, really look at what I'll say is the, the children's story component. This is why this, this story is they're in all of the children's Bibles, and rightfully so. But we can reduce it to such a degree that we make the meaning of the story something like this. You know, bring what you have and you'll learn that if you share, great things can happen. And this is, added to the, this is added by the fact that in the Gospel of John, John records that in the first story, um, it wasn't even the disciples who first had the bread and fish. There was a little boy who came and brought it to the disciples. Makes them even worse. Like, you didn't even have the bread. It's a little boy who brought it. And so you go, remember that in life, oftentimes there won't be enough. But if we learn to share, great things can happen. Okay, that's true. Great. That's a great lesson. But in this story, who are the people who need to hear the message of the story? It's not the children. It's not that little boy. He came. He brought the stuff. Who's the children's story for? It's for the adults. It's for the disciples. The disciples are telling Jesus, send these people home. Send them home. We can't provide for them. Send them home. All we got is this, man. I'm already, and I've been bargaining with John for the half loaf. Like, send them home. The message is for the disciples. And what is the message? Christ is saying he provides, he brings provision. And his provision is more than enough. And in response to his provision, his people ought to bring what they have, bring what they have to the king's table. And you watch him work. You bring what you have to the king's table and you watch him work. And that immediately, when you take this serious, brings up all kinds of insecurities and problems because you, you're, you immediately, well, what do I have to offer? What do I like? And we go, I, I'm not that gifted. I can't do this. I'm not good at that. I don't have much resources. I don't have uh, much time. What You bring what you have because it's not the power of what you have. It's the power of whom you bring it to. You bring what little you have, as little as it may be, and you bring it to the table of the king who throws banqueting feast in the wilderness. And you watch him work. The call of Christians is to trust in our Savior for provision. And bring what little we have and watch him work. Now there's another layer to this. 
Remember, when scriptures do repetition, when there's patterns repeating themselves, you want to look at them. You say, what's, what's going on here? In these two stories, there is something that is repeated and a, and a pattern that's developed. Matthew 14, 19, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And then in the second story, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. So you get this pattern of Jesus giving thanks, he gives a blessing, he breaks bread, and he gives it to his disciples. Now remember, what was this story supposed to do to us? In the first story, our minds were meant to go back to the book of Exodus, where God provided for Israel. There's bread from heaven, daily bread. God himself brings provision from his people out of nowhere. And so in one sense, these stories point us back to the miracle of manna in the wilderness. But these stories are also drawing our attention to another story because Matthew in his gospel will repeat this pattern one more time. Giving thanks, breaking bread, and giving it to his disciples. The pattern will re be repeated for a third time at the end of his gospel. Matthew 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Because Jesus did not come just to bring you material bread. He did not come just to give you physical bread to satisfy a temporary fading fleeting need. He does do that in that story and that's important, but Jesus did not come just to give you bread. Jesus came to be your bread. He in of himself is our daily bread. He is the bread of life. And when he goes to the cross and lays down his life for us, he provides more than enough. His provision is more than enough. And we turn to him and realize it's not just physical material bread that we were in need of. We needed you to do something on our behalf. And so there's the evil king in a palace who throws a feast and it climaxes and culminates with the murder of one of his enemies. Our king throws a feast in the wilderness and provides for his people. And then he goes out to the cross, not to kill his enemy, but to die for them. Blessed are you, Yahweh our God, king of the universe, who brings up bread from the earth. Christ is our daily bread. He is the bread of life. And what we learn from this is that Jesus is our ultimate provision. We go to him and we realize we were in need of more than just physical sustenance. We needed spiritual salvation, spiritual sustenance. And the way Christ would accomplish this would be by laying down his life to provide for his people. So that you could be invited to recline at his table. So that you wouldn't be a stranger in the wilderness anymore. You would be invited as family to recline at the king's table. And when you do that, you bring what little you have and you watch him work. Let's stand as we take communion. As we prepare our hearts for communion, we recognize this is an act that we do as believers, as Christians. And we remember 
what Christ has done. Just as the miracle in the wilderness pointed the people back to the Exodus story, when we take this, we remember Christ on the cross on our behalf. And we remember provision and salvation and grace. And we do this weekly because we're like the disciples. God provided just a week ago, but a chapter and a half later, we forget. And so it's good and wise to remember. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body. It's given for you. If you are a follower of Jesus today, when you take this, you remember Christ died for me. He died for you. It was freely given to you. You had a free invitation to the banqueting feast. Now recline at his table. Let's remember. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. It's the cup of the new covenant. His blood poured out on our behalf. And so in one sense, we remember. And in another sense, we pledge our allegiance. We say, Christ, we recognize you have provided. And now in turn, we pledge our allegiance, which means we'll bring what we have, what little we have. Meager bread and fish, it may be. We're showing up, we're giving it to you, and we're going to watch you work. We give you our allegiance, King Jesus. And so, Father, as we close in prayer, we want to be reminded of your mercies so that we don't forget. Your mercies are new every morning. You have good, you're good to us. You have provided out of the richness and abundance of your mercy and grace. We want to give you thanks. You are Lord and King of the universe. And so we ask that we would give you due honor today and that we would lift the name of your son Jesus high and hold it in proper regard. May the praises of your people be pleasing to your ear. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.